Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Adam Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology is Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how are you? Oh, I'm smashing, thanks Ed. How are you? Yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm uh, really looking forward to the main topic of the episode today. We'll be joined by Matt uh, later. He's uh, just going to miss this bit, but yeah, this is a. am really looking forward to talking about the year 1999 purely because... Uh, it's a idea that I know that the three of us have been batting around basically since the start of this year. Yes. <laughs> but also, which uh, I talked to Matt about doing in like February of of last year, because uh, I was over for a, a funeral uh, in back in the UK for like a week, and uh, we met up and had a coffee, and I was like, you know, I'd really like to do an episode about 1999, like next year. I think that'd be really good. And uh, I thought, and, and we've been trying to do it for ages. Like you know, every week it was our it, it was our Matt Damon getting bumped from Jimmy Kimmel. It was like every every week our next episode was going to be 1999. We finally did it, and like I was just I'm kind of annoyed that we're doing it this week. Like just after the Ringer did like a big article about the 50 1999 ah. movies, it's just like like no, we're not jumping on a bandwagon. Like this is something we've had in the works for a while it's just happening uh, to come out this week theirs is a lovely accompaniment to our discussion i'm i'm uh, super looking forward to it as well as we were confirming that that was definitely what we were going to talk about this week matt did make the fatal mistake of saying it'd be really cool to talk about what we're all doing in 1999 and uh, i answered honestly that i was in primary school uh, mm. so I, d- I don't think he's quite forgiven me so we'll see how the chat goes <laughs> Yeah, I think it, that that should be a, yeah, be a weird one. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll go into the news, and there's a, it's kind of a, a busy week for news. Uh, one story which is still ongoing, uh, by the time that people hear this, it, it may have been resolved or it may I have mean, oh. uh, escalated in a major way, which is the, uh, I guess, showdown between the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, and the ATA, the Association of Talent Agents, Basically, last week, the WGA voted to adopt a new code of conduct by which all of the agents who represent writers would have to abide. The kind of the two major things that the code of conduct said was that agents wouldn't be able to engage in the uh, act of packaging talent anymore, which is where, you know, they put together a project with lots of different clients associated and kind of give it, pitch it to studios, which, uh, you know, in some respects is is it works very well in films you know it, it, mm. when you're talking about one-off movies but uh because the the agent gets like a bit of a cut from that and the studio gets a project but in television specifically which is where a lot of the disagreement comes from it's actually winds up being incredibly lucrative for the agents and not so lucrative for the the writers because they then get kind of like money from that in perpetuity for however long the show goes on so there was there was an article i think in i think it was in the new york times talking about this that where the the creator or showrunner of cold case talked about how uh, because of the way the package deal had been set up years and years before when the budget for the show had to be cut they weren't allowed to cut the amount of money that agents were making from you know the original contract so 
they the agents were still making like seventy five thousand dollars an episode, which was almost as much as the writers who were involved in making the show every day. So that's one of the things that they say they don't want to do anymore because like it's pretty disadvantageous to writers uh, uh, in general. And the other thing is that they don't want agents to be involved in. Uh, owning production and running production companies because it seems to be it's an imbalance of the agent writer relationship because you can end up in a situation where a writer is both employee and employer of their own agent and that's kind of where they say you know we want to change these things these things have been historically very bad for television writers and particularly now in kind of an era where things have changed quite a lot in the american tv industry it's harder for people to kind of get consistent long-running jobs because seasons are shorter now and they 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 want to try and make changes the agents say well you know we're just trying to protect you in like you know an era an era that's changed and what this all amounts to is if they can't reach an agreement by midnight tonight on the day we're recording sunday then thirteen thousand agents will be fired by the writers that they represent and or, or they could be you know like it doesn't necessarily have to happen but that seems to be what is going to happen so that these agents will be, all be fired and things could be thrown into chaos in the television industry in america so it's it's a it's a very big story that's all kind of happened in the course like it's been building up for a while i think anyone who follows any comedy writers on twitter will have noticed they've all had i stand with the wga as their yeah. as their avatars for like the last month but like it's really kind of escalated a lot in the last week and it's kind of a major story in terms of the way in which you know television is made and one of the key relationships that's been at the core of television and film in america for the better part of a century Absolutely. And I do think that we're in an interesting age, given that peak TV has given us this new resurgence of appreciation for writers and writing, because so Mm. often showrunners will be producer writers. They're not directors in this and and the author of the work in the same way that films are like auteur theory falls apart a bit when it comes to TV. And because we have had this resurgence of, you know, streaming stuff and, and writers are in the public eye and appreciated by the public so much more i mean a lot of people still don't know who writes the majority of films i think generally Mm. apart from maybe a couple of really outstanding people outstanding not necessarily in terms of quality i mean literally (laughs) outstanding in in their field and they've already been that way and established for a long time and are probably directors as well very few famous writer only people in hollywood i agree and and that's what makes TV and this fight so interesting because I, when it comes to WGA stuff and, 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 you, and you look at these kind of um, union strikes, it's tricky to get the public on side, I think, because mm. there is this idea of like, you know, and there's still this fallacy of like, if you are famous, if you are known, if you're, if you're working, if your work is getting made, somehow you're super rich. Mm. and like you've had enough and I'm really gripped by this because obviously the agents are now the kind of there's this uh, reading some of the stuff in Variety there are these kind of like likening the whole packaging system and these kind of ratios that um, agents are taking like the agents are because uh, agencies are moving into um, production and, and behaving more like studios but they're behaving like studios of yesteryear like it's mm. you know we talk about the golden age of hollywood but it was a shit time for workers 
because you you yeah. you had a contract and you were locked in right and and you were a cog in the factory of the studio and it looks like we're kind of edging ever so slightly into that again with this so i'm really interested to see if the writers have enough public clout and the idea of public support and this public support being essentially like the audiences and us as consumers because i don't think the yeah. agents are, it's like well you know i mean this is the thing like i i feel quite a bit a bit palpitation knowing this is all going on as we're recording this because i don't know which way it's going to go but there there are 13,000 members who are ordered to fire their agents yeah and it's this really odd symbiotic like an, a relationship between an agent and talent should be symbiotic right but i can't really see an argument for how this aid this kind of code of practice isn't tipping over into being parasitic right mm. and i'm and i'm and i i you know I don't think it's any uh, <laughs> any secrets that I'm I'm quite on the workers' rights end of the political scale. So I fully support the writers, and I think I re I really hope that they clap back. And you know, it, it's kind of amazing to think it 10, 11 years since the last WGA strike, and mm. and the and the ripples like the effects that that had then, which was just on the cusp of like you know we weren't we weren't really in peak tv in the streaming era then and that had a that still had a huge knock-on effect on loads of shows seasons and that was an you know that was a strike that was what three three months nearly a quarter of a year kind of yeah, and, and, yeah. and like over over the christmas period um and i actually ended up um i happened to be it was the first time i ever went to la i think it was actually like the either the last week of january or the first week of february so towards the end of the strike but it really felt like nothing that was at a point where it was like it still it still felt like an absolute deadlock you know mm. and i actually remember speaking to a striking writer incredibly normal sweet looking guy like very affable with his picket line and and there was us a busload of 18 year old film and media students <laughs> <laughs> on the best trip of our lives <laughs> and just being like hey so so can, can we ask like why are you striking and they said oh you know he said i wrote a movie i think he wrote the movie rocket dog is that is that what it was called but he was but again it was talking about like and i'm not going to get the royalties i'm i'm due on it really i'm not going to get my my dividends my returns and i i wrote that movie and it was kind of amazing to just be like oh my god you're an actual human being and you wrote a movie this is blowing my mind and yeah of course you should get your money and they very kindly lent us their signs so we got some pretty cool photos with them striking but but before that the last major strike was in 88 like there's this weird kind of 10 20 year cycle where it seems like the wga strikes literally <laughs> either either mm. strikes or strikes back and then you know the the people making money off them can can kind of uh, you know they replenish their hit points and then come back in a different way yeah i don't know and and on top of it like and at this absolute crunch point where we've got you know the giant fox disney merger as well when even more people are at a threat of being laid off i don't know it's a really i i just don't know what's going to happen i really don't mm, yeah and it's going to be really fascinating kind of seeing what the fallout of this whole thing ends up being because the you know the entertainment industry has gone through a really shocking transformation that i think a lot of people maybe don't appreciate you know how striking it is to move from 
a situation where you know most shows run for 22 episodes a year instead of 13 and how much that impacts the writers because that means that basically half their income disappears if they have to do it and so what you often you know we're going through a period now where you see lots of people who write for tv also do podcasts or they write for multiple shows at the same time they freelance or they are you know kind of like you're doing stand-up and some of this is like just people are very creative and they do a lot of things but a lot of it is like yeah you kind of need to hustle to try and have a a lot of things going at the same time because even as there are more tv shows being made and that there are therefore more opportunities to find work a lot of that work is not as stable as it had been in the past unless you work for like a late night show that's going to be airing five four or five episodes 40 weeks a year or whatever it ends up being like unless you have one of those jobs like there's not a huge amount of stability really in in television writing in the way that there had been in the past and so you kind of need the 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 system as it currently exists and, and in the wake of like the collapse of the physical media market the fact that you don't really get reruns to the extent that you did anymore yeah so like people aren't getting quite as many residuals from old tv shows unless it's like friends basically yeah (laughs) Uh, because that's uh, it because technology has galloped ahead of everything our democracy (laughs) i'm fine mm. I'm, I'm i'm totally fine but, but particularly in regard to labor laws and and these rights like you say like residuals you know the the technology and the way that we consume it has shifted so completely that, that legality hasn't caught up yet and that doesn't mm. that that reflection doesn't happen unless you unless workers really fight for it yeah. you know it's it's not it will never be down to the benevolence of companies or people who are profiting mm. And I think also what's interesting about this happening now, to put it in a kind of a broader perspective of things going on in America, is that it's coming after a year of fairly significant successes for organised labour, where you saw with the teacher strikes in West Virginia and Arizona and uh, Los Angeles, you know, like where teacher unions went on strike and they got a lot of kind of really... Uh, great concessions you know they they not as much as teachers should get obviously teachers should be you know paid whatever they need to have a living wage and they should be supported and in a lot of places in america don't do that but um you know that was there was kind of like that's a a run of successes for organized labor that uh, hasn't really been seen in the u.s in quite a while and i think that unions in general are being viewed a lot more positively than they have been in the past after like a decade of real strong anti-union policies in a lot of states in in the u.s and but at the same time you also had there was a supreme court ruling last year that kind of really could potentially have a kind of real deleterious effect upon the ability of unions to raise money for kind of like political campaigns so it's it's, they're very much a mixed bag but it really does feel as if there's like a real increase in people's interest in union you know with it to, to kind of uh talk about my own industry there's a lot of talk about unionization within the games industry at the moment and people wanting to form unions particularly in the uk like the uk's got a a burgeoning scene of people wanting to establish unions so there is a uh there's that there feels as if you know the there is a pushback at the moment against unfettered uh corporatism which is uh, a hugely positive and hopeful uh, but you know as as of anything like this the 
you know, it's often a very long struggle. Yes. <laughs> and so yeah. it will be, ho- hopefully this will end well for the WGA and we could maybe see a- a- arrangements being made that could be helpful to writers in a future where maybe residuals are, uh, you know, theoretically more or less a thing of the past as people move past television and syndication to, you know, a, a, a fairly much constantly streaming future. Yeah. Speaking about the, the digital nightmare that we all live in, um, <laughs> this was a story that just uh, caught my attention and isn't really film or TV related, but I think is um, a good illustration if anyone is ever wondering why exactly people are worried about the death of physical media and why um, a lot of people, um, myself included, are very sceptical about streaming in general and digital, uh, and companies kind of like selling you things digitally. Uh, Microsoft announced that they were closing down their ebook service for the very simple reason that no one used it. In comparison to like something like Amazon, like you, you, you can't really compete against Amazon or, or Apple, who also sell them, uh, or Google. So they closed down their ebooks, and basically they've said that anyone who bought an ebook from them, that book will disappear in June, and they'll get a refund. And some people are like saying, "Well, you know, like they're getting a refund. Why is everyone complaining?" But like to me, that that strikes me as just like a real sign of like the impermanence of digital media like that is it is literally like you buy a book from barnes and noble and then three years later someone knocks on your door and says they're going to take it from you yeah and they say here's like you know you get your 20 dollars back whatever but like it still is like a violation of the agreement you made which is that i paid for this thing i want to own it and what you're actually doing when you're buying things digitally particularly with like drm and things like that is you are agreeing to own that thing for as long as the company decides that you own it and that is a very different thing yeah i guess the thing is is that there needs to be clarity because i think the issue was was that that was what was offered and that's and that exchange of money to own a thing like that is your Mm. possession now right and they've rescinded on that and a lot of people are a bit like whereas this seems to me like a big boo-boo in terms of actually what you had was a license to access this thing and now that that essential sort of like I hesitate to call it a library because it sounds a little bit like I'm making libraries sound evil in this case but but it's essentially a, a lending service and you had a license like that's and I maybe that's the way to change things going forward everything's uh, transient and ephemeral and we will all ultimately die so yeah good good lesson to learn as early as possible maybe through an ebook i don't know if you didn't have a pet growing up maybe this is the way to do it <laughs> but I, I i so i feel a bit like i i get it but at the same time i don't think this is the worst i think i think i feel i feel ickier about apple making everyone have a u2 album that they can't get rid of easily that that mm-hmm. unnerves me more in terms of which segment of the digital nightmare i particularly <laughs> particularly gets to me but you're right it's still it's still annoying and i and i think like a lot of people it's more concerning if you're actually backing up stuff because it's like oh well if if all of my documents and and so much in terms of what we work at how we work now is essentially in in the cloud people can be like oh could that just be taken away from me so i do i do see it and and i i wonder hopefully maybe this is just a prompt for 
maybe physical media can come back a bit in the race off the back of this kind of because this isn't the first time that this has happened recently mm, yeah yeah because there was the story last year i think about apple where people who had bought movies from them digitally lost those movies because like they had basically yes. they like changed the file or whatever or the that 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 people had bought and so they didn't own them anymore yeah. which i don't think was like a widespread problem like the way that it was presented but certainly was like and this is the case as well like it's not the absolute worst thing in the world people are getting their money back that's you know it'd be worse if they just said oh we're closing this down <laughs> fuck you you don't yeah. have your money you don't have books anymore and we have your money but like it still is indicative of why of one of the problems with kind of the rush to embrace just you know kind of like everything digital everything streaming is yeah. like you move from a situation where you can own a thing and then it you pay your money and that's yours to one in which corporations own everything and you just have a license to enjoy the thing until they say you don't yeah and like and that that's kind of like for me it's kind of like more indicative of a wider problem than it is necessarily a kind of full-blown disaster true true uh, there were uh, a couple of good trailers that debuted this week, or at least interesting trailers. The first of which was the trailer for Todd Phillips's Joker movie, which I have to say I'm not massively interested in just because I've, I'm just so fucking tired of the Joker. Yeah. Um, like the Jared Leto in the Suicide Squad just killed so much of my interest in that character at all. And it just feels like a well... I mean, it's funny that they're rebooting the character like three years later. <laughs> that is that that alone is quite funny. But like, just like I just don't really have that much interest in it. But the trailer looks, you know, kind of like visually more distinctive than a lot of you know. Certainly, when you consider like the somewhat anonymous visuals of a lot of the the Marvel movies, and how it it seems to mark like an interesting thing where DC really do seem to be giving directors more or less a free reign to do what they want with their movies at this point now that Zack Snyder's not involved and he's not defining the template um they seem to be giving directors more of a free hand in doing what they want and you know Todd Phillips wants to make well what looks like a somewhat glum Joker movie with uh Joaquin Phoenix kind of like slouching around and being beaten down by the world until he starts killing people which is a choice (laughs) is a way is certainly a way to go with that story choice is overrated Mm-hmm. but like yeah like I, I i watched that trailer and i kind of came away thinking that it looked a little bit like a college humor video version oh, of someone God. saying what if we wanted to make a serious joker movie right down to like the somewhat slowed down version of smile so, uh you know that they use in the trailer <sighs> like everything about it makes me think they went okay what are the cliches of like a serious dark awards winning movie and how would we make that the joker um and like i guess it's kind of effective in that in that it did make me sit up and say okay this looks different than what i was expecting but it also made me think i find it hard to take this seriously as a movie that exists completely it two things struck my mind i'm so glad that you had the same kind of vibe because i was like am i just pissing all over this kind of franchise stuff as i tend to do but no i'm glad i'm glad because i had like that I'm not alone because I had exactly the same feeling. I was like, this feels like either number one, the absolutely genius spoof trailer that I sent you not that long ago for a film, uh, a film that doesn't exist called Manson, which uh, <laughs> is, is, is mainly a fantastically barbed 
response to the sort of I think mainly the sexualization of Ted Bundy recently mm. um which shows you know Charlie Manson as a as a guy who uh is from an early early childhood age told that he's never going to be a murderer uh, his father tells yeah. him he won't amount to anything won't kill anyone and yet you know Charlie goes on and he manages to kill which you know was uh, you and I had a very dark chuckle over and number two it just felt like an <laughs> SNL digital short it felt like mm. I don't know it kind of to me it felt like if Joaquin Phoenix had gone on SNL to promote you were never really here mm-hmm. yeah um and, yeah. and I was just like oh this doesn't I, I was just expecting Ryan Gosling to pop up and be like papyrus you know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah not not great yeah and like it could be like as an as ever you know it's just a trailer the movie could be very different but like it definitely feels to be setting out a tone and an intent for the movie that to me doesn't strike me as that interesting because like on the one hand like i don't really care about how the joker became the joker <laughs> like yeah. the reason the reason why the killing joke is one of the like the seminal comics about it is that they basically say here's how the joke happened but also he may be lying so mm. who cares like the thing is that he is a guy who dresses up as a clown and wants to murder people that's kind of his thing and he seems to have a real good time doing it like how he reached that point is actually immaterial and not that interesting and the other thing and this was pointed out by brett party on twitter is like one of the problems with a lot of the um like grim and gritty takes on batman this isn't just in movies but you know also in the comics and things like that is that they decide to try and make things seem realistic by saying oh like these characters all have genuine mental illnesses in which case you're meant to root for the guy who's beating up the mentally ill and that's actually not intrinsic to any of the characters you can just say hey this is a guy who likes to murder people and he dresses up as a clown he doesn't need to have a deep-seated trauma that makes him want to do that. He can just be a guy who wants to kill people. Yeah. And, like, that is, to me, more fun because I don't feel bad about Batman beating up people who are just, like, evil and want to kill people. Uh, but also it just kind of feels like it, it... Like, when you try and meld the worlds of kind of, like, serious mental illness the result of like trauma or whatever that that people have suffered and they dress up in spandex and fight on rooftops like the two don't really mesh that well and they end up undermining each other in a way that just is like for me quite unpleasant and so something like this which seems to be going all in on the hey he's just a good guy who the world screwed over and he just snapped you know i don't want to see falling down with the joker like that's not that's not an interesting idea to me, and that's just seems to be what the movie is selling. So, uh, film crit Hulk recently reposted an article that he wrote um, a couple of years ago called uh, "PC Culture versus the Big Joke," which focuses on the sort of interlinking between this kind of memes and the far right and this free speech joke defense and mm. how the Joker is so inherent in that, in the Dark Knight, in this kind of like chaotic, destructive force. And there's a reason why it's an absolutely fantastic article. I cannot recommend it enough. And there's a, there's a reason why that, that Film Crit Hulk um, puts across this argument. The Joker is central to this. And particularly in the Dark Knight, uh, his catchphrase of why so serious 
is you know it's all around reddit and, and in these kind of forums so i think i am concerned about legitimizing certain sympathies given given the significance of that character and what he means to a certain certain section of uh, society mm, yeah totally uh, somewhat more positively certainly i think judging by the shot reverse shot whatsapp group <laughs> uh, we, we all lost our minds over it was the trailer for jim jarmusch's new movie the Dead Don't Die, which is a zombie comedy that was announced, I think I think it was announced last year, or certainly the images of it started cropping up this year. You know, I remember seeing um, a certain subsection of Twitter uh, being very, very excited when the image of Adam Driver carrying a machete uh, cropped up, and then the trailer debuted this week, and it was just everything you could possibly want. It looks incredibly funny. It's got an amazing cast. Adam Driver, as I mentioned, Bill Murray, who obviously is a something of a Jarmusch regular at this point, Chloe Sevigny, who's always welcome, and Tom Waits, uh, as he's billed in the trailer, which, uh, you know, he's always uh, always wonderful to see Tom Waits show up, particularly in a movie where hopefully he's going to get to shoot some zombies. Iggy Pop as a zombie, which honestly is... Uh, I'm surprised it hasn't happened by now. It's probably already been done, but, you know, it, like he definitely seems to suit that role. And just everything about the trailer looks so incredibly fun. It looks like... I, I always really enjoy it when... Jarmusch kind of dips into genre which he does from time to time yeah. like with something like Down by Law you know his take on uh, a prison escape movie I love I love that I love the uh, love Only Lovers Left Alive I thought was was like a really fun take on on vampires Ghost Dog Where the Samurai you know it was kind of like a real cool hitman movie I really enjoy when he applies his particular sensibility to a genre that maybe is overstuffed and tired and you know, we've had a lot of zombie me during the last decade or so, and this this feels like he could do something really, uh, really fun with it. And yeah, the the trailer is just chock full of just wonderful little moments and lines of dialogue. It's just smashing. And again, like because the Joker's Joker trailer still sort of uh, not quite out of my head. The Joker trailer just shows the whole bloody film. Whereas mm. Dead Don't Die, there's lots of little bits of action but i'm still like oh cool i get the sense of the world and what we're up against but i still don't really know what's going to happen like yeah. jarmusch is the kind of guy like everyone could survive or everyone could die mm. it also has the most spectacular line reading in history ever i think yeah. i mean it's it's in the top three there, there are others but it is which which of course goes to adam driver and the way that he says ghouls in a way that's almost like it reminded me of christopher walken like he's kind of mm. edging into that territory also really nice to see indie queen Chloe Sevigny back yeah. and, and Bill Murray. The, the only kind of slightly little bit too on the zany scale for me, I, I'm not feeling Tilda Swinton's character at all. Mm. It's a poor Scottish accent for someone of Scottish heritage who lives in Nairn, just going to say. Yeah. Um, and I all the kind of ninja stuff looking a bit like her old, bam, you know, the, she looks quite a lot like um her vampire character in the only lovers left alive and and, and the whole funeral home shtick no. but fortunately we have plenty of other things to be getting on with including tom waits come on in sir selena gomez who i think you know i haven't really seen uh since spring breakers but i she looks like a interesting grounding sort of presence mm. oh god everyone's in it it looks like a really a, a right a ruddy good romp ed Yes, I am massively excited for that. It's also a nice counterpoint to, in terms of like just bonkers casting. It's, it, for me, it feels like the anti-cats. 
that was a movie that like got a lot of attention this week because they at CinemaCon they talked about the movie. I don't think they showed any footage because I don't think it, they they literally just finished filming Cats, and I think a lot of the the CGI that's going to be used hasn't been finished yet. But um, I really greatly enjoyed people losing their minds over the discussion of Cats and some of the creative decisions that have been made, such as that. Um, it's going to be shot on it was shot on kind of like scale sets so uh, so all of the actors are cat sized and they're in a kind of a, a massive world which makes sense because that's kind of how the, the play is done but at the same time like that was the play um, yes that kind of a choice maybe makes more sense in a theatrical world particularly one where the cast are running into the audience and kind of interacting with people but the thing about it that just i i really I just I can't wait to see the trailer for this because I, I have to see how this works in action because in my mind it's the worst thing ever and I have to see confirmation of this. The idea that the actors all performed in like your, your mocap uniforms and they're going to be replaced with realistic CGI cats and that just seems to me to be such a bonkers choice particularly when you consider that one of the characters in Cats exists purely to perform ballet and... Mm. Are we going to see a realistic cat do ballet? Well, it seems like web 1.0 kind of like desktop stuff. Um, but it, it's just like such a weird thing. And the cast for the movie is insane. Um, everyone talks about Taylor Swift. But the fact that Jason Derulo is playing Rum Tum Tugger is like one of the weirdest things I think I've ever heard. And and yeah, it's just it's just so... And Cats itself is such an insane play. Like I recommend anyone go and just read the plot description because you will f- you will feel like you're having a stroke like no- it's all just non it's nonsense words just being th- and and all the play is is cats introducing themselves until one of them goes to heaven and like that's that's the play that's all the story is like how do you turn that into a movie <laughs> um i'm just i'm just really <laughs> everything about it like i'm i'm gonna hate it because i hate tom hooper so much <laughs> and i hate his movies <laughs> and i'm this just seems like it's going to be such a disaster but i really am excited to see it because it just feels like it just could just be such an exquisite disaster and that i could do what my parents did in 1982 when they went to see it on the west end and walk out halfway through. <laughs> it's a generation thing this is my inheritance <laughs> is the, the chance to walk out of cats i think it was ryan johnson who tweeted recently about his parents coming home from watching it and his mother just sinking into a chair looking into the middle distance saying well there were a lot of cats mm, that's it it's gonna make rent redeemable isn't it and i don't i'm not down for that <laughs> Yeah, I think the thing about cats did, and I kind of like talked about this on Twitter the other day when I was just like posting screenshots of the plot description and being like, what the fuck does any of this mean? The thing I like about it is it kind of sums up for me what I love about all musical theatre, which is that it's impossible for you to guess what's going to be a success, what's not. Like cats is one of the longest running plays in, in Broadway history and in West End history as well. And it's nonsense with trash songs <laughs> like none of the songs in cats are good except for memories which is the only one anyone remembers but it was like massively successful and then like there's nothing intrinsic to it that would say that this would make money and be a huge success whereas uh, you know i don't know like the rocky musical closed after th- two months or whatever like there's nothing the intrinsic to either that would make you think okay this is going to be a success and this is going to be a failure and that's kind of why I like, that's why i like about musicals it's impossible to tell 
which way it's going to go. And that's also what excites me about the movie is like, I'm pretty sure it's going to be terrible, but I have no, no way of telling eight months out or however long it's going to be until it comes out, whether or not it's going to be, it's going to take down a studio. <laughs> like, uh, it obviously probably couldn't because whoever whoever's making it has deep pockets, I'm sure. But like, it, it, it does just strike me as so weird and misguided a project on conceptually and then in actuality. Uh, and our final bit of news this week, and again, this is kind of casting news, but it's just it's just it's just great. It's just a great decision that I'm happy. Uh, was made, which is that John Cho is being cast as Spike Spiegel in the Netflix live-action adaptation of Cowboy Bebop. I think we should uh, make a shout-out to friend of the show, Kaylee Donaldson, who has been advocating for this for probably years at this oh, point. She, oh, she has, and... she has receipts. <laughs> like, it was impressive to uh, to track back. Yeah, so uh, very, very happy for her <laughs> that, that uh, this has happened, and I think happy for all of us, because honestly, that's probably the best choice you could make. I think making a cowboy Bebop movie is probably a mistake because the series is perfect and i don't see what you could get from doing it in live action but if you're going to make a bad choice in making uh cowboy bebop like john cho is pretty much the perfect person you could cast in that role so uh yeah in the next segment matt will join us to talk about the year 1999 let's let matt out of the box he's been in there for quite a while so we'll get on to our main topic this week, and it's going to be the year 1999, which is a year that I think has been getting a lot of attention recently. Obviously, it's the 20th anniversary, and there have been lots of articles doing the rounds of people talking about the best movies that came out this year. And for a while now, it's been cited, I think, as you know, one of the best movie years of recent vintage, uh, yeah, alongside something like you know 2007, which is also cited often. And so... Uh, what we wanted to talk about this week is why exactly the year 1999 is held in such high regard and Matt is now uh, joining us hey. to, to discuss that. Hi Matt, I know you have a hard out so we are <laughs> not going to dilly or indeed dally and just get right into it. Um, what does the year 1999 conjure up for, for you guys? Matt, we'll start with you first since uh, obviously you're you're just joining the call. Mm. Plus, I'm the oldest. That's the uh, that's the implication there. Um, yeah, you're, you were yeah. the only one who could see most of these movies in the cinema when they yeah. came out. Is that the new euphemism? <laughs> yeah. I was in my first year of university, believe it or not, in 1999. Yeah, so c- coming to university, moving away from kind of rural Suffolk to live in um, the bright lights and big cities of South Yorkshire, and you know, being a big change, uh, kind of becoming an adult, I guess, and and going to study film, mm. what a good year to start in. Um, because looking through the list, I'd caught most of these films in the a lot of all the summer films. I I was working in the cinema before I left, so uh, I kind of caught most of these at the pictures before I left, and then obviously arrived and kind of started mixing with people who. Uh, we're super into movies and films and going to the cinema all the time and suddenly having the choice of not only one cinema but multiple cinemas to go to that showed lots of different types of movies so whilst 1999 if you say to me what was it like as a year i always say oh yeah i mean it was amazing but also for me it represented a kind of like a new beginning i guess to sound like a prick um but also uh, that was kind of the beginning of you know me being a total asshole <laughs> for about eight years being like a, just like a deeply unlikable kind of idiot really you know how you everyone goes for a phase yeah mm. like i mean 
yeah, without getting too into it, I'd probably just, <laughs> I'd just had my heart broken for the first time when my first oh, girlfriend good. went to uni. Just, I kind of lost control a little bit, got very excited, as you do when you uh, discover new things. Just, just, I, yeah, just, I apologize to anyone who met me during those years. <laughs> uh, and if you're still there, thanks. You stuck it out. Well done. No, you, none of you two would be around. I swear <laughs> to you now if you knew me. <laughs> yeah, especially because uh, at the time I was 12. And mm. it would have just been weird. <laughs> it'd have been weird us just hanging out in the first place, you know. I said that as well. I was like, you know, I, I moved to Sheffield. I've lived here now. I lived, moved there in 1999. I live here now. Lived here for 20 years. Uh, married someone from Sheffield. And, you know, I say to my wife, like, oh, when I came to uni, amazing. What if we'd have met? And she'd be like, I was 13. So that would have been super <laughs> weird. So, yeah. Yeah. That, so that's what I was up to. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could have hung out in my parents' pub because... Uh, they they ran pubs for years and years and years. So, if you had somehow managed to make your way to Market Bosworth, maybe on a school trip mm-hmm. to visit the battlefields and wandered into the Black Horse, mm-hmm. then that could have happened. I think for me, nineteen ninety nine is kind of a year that, in retrospect, was very very good because you know I was twelve. I couldn't see most of the kind of big movies that people cite from that time in the cinema when they came out like i definitely couldn't have gone to a scene fight club as well as because like if i wanted to see a movie i had to be driven there by my parents so it was like you if you wanted to see something it kind of had to be something that everyone could see so when i think about 1999 like the 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 movie i think of is toy story 2 more than anything else because like that was a big movie that i was really excited for and which was uh really terrific and really blew my mind but it was also something that we could all as a family kind of go and watch and then for me like 2000 was like the year when suddenly like all of those movies that everyone had been excited for a year ago started hitting dvd or um that yeah uh, so like those are the ones that i caught up then still too young to watch them but at least i was watching them in the comfort of my own home and also obviously the phantom menace i think was probably like the big movie that i remember thinking of mm-hmm. uh from that year especially because it was the first movie i ever watched on a pirate video wow my my friend john Maraffa brought it round and we watched it it was a very low quality one so you really couldn't see most of the special effects it was <laughs> very <laughs> very dim and poorly lit and so when I watched the far, the the actual movie in cinema like a month later or whatever, uh, I remember just being like, "Oh, this is all, this all looks bad." Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was better when it was better when all of the effects were hidden. <laughs> yeah, my, my first ever pirate video I bought from Felixstowe Market in 1994 was <laughs> Jurassic Park. And they'd gone as far as to stick pictures from the movie on the outside of the case. And uh, not going to lie, did not know what the film was about for the first 10 minutes. No idea. <laughs> Anything that took place at nighttime was, was a crapshoot. You didn't know. If it was it was daytime, you could tell. But other than that, good God. Yeah, piracy's really come on in years since then. <laughs> now, <laughs> it's it's not literally someone just filming it in the cinema <laughs> with the uh, the light, light problems. Uh, how about you, Emily? What are your kind of overriding memories as someone who was also a child <laughs> in 1999? I was, it was my last year of single digit age. Yeah. Um, I was I was a whole nine years old. Um, so I would have been allowed in the Black Horse with an adult and a plated meal and then told mm. to move sharply probably around 6 p.m. in those days. Yeah. The, the thing that strikes me about 99 is, yeah, I couldn't see anything in the cinema. I, I couldn't independently go to the cinema for a start. But what really strikes me looking at the wealth of, I mean, let's be honest, I'm mainly looking at American films here and british mm. films i'm not really looking at like 
a, a huge amount of world films. Although we did get All About My Mother, um, which mm, was yeah. a big a big breakthrough for Almodovar. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The thing that strikes me is how the most of the films are films that really became so important to me in my teens. Like, yeah. there's a lot of really incredible teen stuff, like Cruel Intentions and Ten Things I Hate About You. I think mm. are the two that stand out by a mile. American Pie as well was 99. And it just seemed yeah. to be like there was this shift in making, well well before Twilight, in making stuff for younger people who were, oh, Girl Interrupted as well. I forgot about that. But, but stuff that was like darker or smarter, funnier. It, it wasn't, even though the films clearly weren't marketed at adults at all, there was this kind of, well, quite a heavy literary adaptation. Not American Pie so much. <laughs> but uh, Cool Intentions, 10 Things I Hate About You and Girl Interrupted all have kind of literary roots. So it was interesting to see these kinds of, you know, I think there's this thing that's put against teen films as being quite flimsy. But the fact that there have been outpourings in particular about Cruel Intentions and 10 Things I Hate About You in terms of films that 20 years on people really hold on to. But I think the reason that they hit me in my, like, in my tweendom, because I remember seeing 10 Things I Hate About You um, on a coach trip to Germany and everyone was just like losing their shit. Um, it was exactly the decision everyone wanted to make. And I think it was the the difference between, you know, I'd, I'd gone to start secondary school in 2001 and there were lots of people who had elder siblings and so they'd been able to go to the cinema at that kind of, in 99 and, and see this kind of stuff. And I just remember that this is this is a year where there was still a significant gap between a film being shown in cinemas and then coming out to be able to rent or buy on VHS. Mm. So there was this kind of like parabola of time where if you didn't see it in the cinema, you genuinely had missed it for months. Possibly, mm. possibly even, you know, maybe you'd get to see it on TV in 18 months time. Like it would be broadcast and someone would bought the rights to it. But that was what was so exciting was kind of getting to 11 and there'd been enough word of mouth generated and that these things could be rented or bought and in HMV and watched over and over again. So I think that's why 99, so many of the films really stick with me, even though I wasn't able to see them in the cinema because they were starting to come into home video when I was tipping into just being about old enough for my mum to be like, yeah, okay, we can watch this in the privacy of our own home and you know what these words mean and you do not repeat them to anyone. Um, so so I, I still find it a really formative year. And like, I remember leaving primary school at uh, the age of, you know, 11. And um, I remember so clearly writing in my end of year, like leaving year sort of, well, yeah, I guess you'd call it's weird. Yearbook is such an American term, but you know what I mean? It was like everyone writing a page about themselves, you know, mm. pro like proto MySpace, basically, you know, welcome to my page. And uh, I remember so specifically putting down like my favorite films are Sleepy Hollow and American Beauty, which I think raised a few eyebrows uh, from my teachers. Um, but, you mm. know, I was leaving. What could they do? Loco and parentis no more. Um, and uh, I think that there is just a lot of, there's a lot of like quite exciting, particularly in these American teen films, that kind of like mid-budget that you don't really see anymore. And mm. um, let's not forget Galaxy Quest is in the mix here of a 99 release. And it's that yeah. thing mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, okay, it's something that isn't like 
you know, a full blown production, but neither are we quite into the sort of indie wave. There's there's kind of a and by that I mean the kind of do it yourself indie wave, not like Soderbergh. It's it's mm. this quite exciting time where a mid budget film was was treated like a real viable option by studios and audiences. Mm. Mm. It was like the the time that uh, the mini majors, your 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 Fox Searchlights and your uh, Miramaxes yeah. and stuff were having the clout at the Oscars. Yes, and your mid budget films like I think it was maybe the next year just but something like the side of house rules did really well oh, I love that and that film. was uh yeah that was like yeah, that was uh, nice yeah yeah so a lot, a lot of the the kind of mini majors were um putting their eggs in that basket um which is something that kind of feels like it's dried up a little bit now but the, the teen movie thing it was like the the kind of the groundwork that had been laid by clueless a few years mm, beforehand yes. all of a sudden there was this kind of boom starting with America, I don't know if that was the first one out, but American Pie, 10 Things Out of Bay, and Core Intentions being the three, maybe the craft a year before, maybe, that had kind of looked and said, well, people have got a kind of appetite for whip-smart, self-referential teen movies, but are played for, in a lot of ways, kind of gross-out laughs. And the gross-out thing had been kind of dormant since things like Porky's, yeah. and that kind of that kind of combining that kind of 80s kind of oh i'm watching an illicit video my older brother's given me with that kind of smart kevin williamson style talking about pop culture fusing over team movie uh, was something that kind of set the tone for um a lot of you know mid and low budget studio comedies for the next kind of five or six years mm. and i think what you also see in terms of like you know the the seeds of clueless kind of taking root now in it or in 1999 i think what you also see is that there's lots of different waves and things that had been going on in the film industry for years and years and years that all kind of crest at the same time which mm -hmm. i think is why 1999 has a particular wealth of movies and i'm like you know a lot of why people talk about 1999 so kind of positively i think is nostalgia i think a lot of people who are now you know, critics who are now in their 30s and 40s were in their teens and 20s when 1999 rolled around. So I think it was a formative year for a lot of people and they look back on it very fondly. But even, you know, for, for people like like me and Emily who were not able to watch most of these movies at the time, like I think it, when you look at the list of movies that came out that year, it really does feel as if, oh, there was like a wealth of stuff. And I think that the, the teen movie thing has definitely been, and uh, Charlie Lyon obviously covered a lot of this in um, Beyond Clueless, you know, there was like a wave of movies that all came out after then that were all aimed at teens, but made kind of appealing to the top of their intelligence in a lot of ways, or at the very least being like, okay, we're going to make something that you might actually genuinely like, instead of like, yes. just trying to rehash ideas of the past or whatever, um, which is ironic, because most of them were adaptions of novels that were hundreds of years old. Yeah. But um, I think you also had you know, you're 10 years on from the start of the Sundance boom and the independent, the kind of the real kind of rebirth of American independent cinema, which meant that you had a lot of people who were kind of really at the peak of their powers creatively, but also commercially. So maybe they were able to try bigger things. I think if you look at someone like, like Spike Lee making Summer of Sam, which is like a, a flawed, but like really kind of fascinating and 
crazy movie and the sort of thing that you can only really make if you've had you know like years and years of critical success under your belt magnolia very much a movie that you can see be like someone making one they've had a commercially reasonably successful movie and got an oscar nomination under their belt like fincher doing uh, fight club was clearly like oh you made seven which was huge and like an out of the box hit the game was pretty successful we'll let you make your your movie about sad punch lads uh and then like someone like a mike judge coming from television having had huge success with beavis and butthead and king of the hill being able to make office space like it really felt as if a lot of people or someone like spike jones coming from music videos and like the 90s was the period when you really started to see a lot of people taking music videos very seriously as an art form in themselves and i think that's when you see people like michael bay coming over because they just had made big successful music videos and they had a style but also these people who were critically very well regarded like being courted by hollywood to try and make more interesting movies and so i think there's a lot of things kind of going on under the surface that all kind of crest at the same time in 1999 Mm. it's interesting to look at some of those indie directors who kind of started with the Sundance boom and then where they are at the end of that decade Mm. and people like Steven Soderbergh and Spike Lee both finishing the uh, decade making studio pictures um Mm. but still kind of relatively personal Mm. ones yeah like the Limey's a pretty weird movie but it's it was making studio money and it's wedged in between Out of Sight and the Ocean's Eleven, maybe, mm, yeah. I think, possibly, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then that kind of second wave of post-Sundance, uh, mid-90s people like David O. Russell, who mm. made things like uh, Flirting with Disaster and Spanking the Monkey, and then drops something like Three Kings, like a studio war film, like with, you know, a bunch of money behind it, oh, Shot in yeah, the Desert yeah. with George Clooney. It's very interesting to see those people, what stage of their careers they're at. Um, and how they're kind of clinging on to what is probably maybe a different definition of independence. Um, mm. And you're starting to see kind of, oh, I mean, uh, another one, Clerks. Smith, Kevin Smith was making, you know, films with his credit cards and, you know, hocking himself to make Clerks at the start of the 90s. And at the end, he's making Dogma, which is, should we say, a film that got away from him a little, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, although uh, I read uh, just recently that Dogma is a film that doesn't exist anymore because the Weinstein brothers own the rights. Yeah. Because it was made by Miramax, who at the time when they owned it were owned by Disney. Disney didn't want to put it out because they were getting heat from the Catholic League. So the Weinsteins were like, we'll buy it. And well, you know, they're, they've got other things on their plate to not release it now. Mm. Um, so it just doesn't exist. On digital, in a, in, a, in a streaming format anywhere. If you've got it on DVD, great, but it's never gonna never gonna stream anywhere. No, that's crazy. Well, weird thing, right? That is that is very very bizarre. Um, mm. I think what's interesting as well that year is like there's different generations of filmmakers who are all doing really great work. It's not like when you look at the the uh, Hollywood in the seventies or France in the sixties, where you had all people who are all kind of about the same age, same generation, all coming into their own. Like there's people like uh, some of the people we already mentioned, but you also have like Sophia Coppola who made the Virgin Suicides that year. Oh my God. Um, yes. M. Night Shyamalan did obviously made the sixth sense that year. And he was someone who he had made two movies previously for the aforementioned Weinsteins and had not had a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, unsurprisingly and then you know kind of got to make 
uh, a movie that was very different to what he'd been doing before. The other stuff he had been doing had been like quite sappy, sentimental dramas. And he decided to take a, a swing on something that was very, very different uh, and ended up being the second most successful film of the year <laughs> behind mm. Star Wars. Um, he, he also wrote Stuart Little in the same year. Yeah, big year. Big year for <laughs> my Shyamalan. Yeah. Uh, the great man straddles two extremes. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing that's really funny, of course, uh, also to talk about like weird contractual things involving Disney is that uh, it was the second biggest film of the year and Disney made almost no money on it because the executive who commissioned it basically did it behind the backs of Michael Eisner and the heads at uh, Disney. He was, he gave M. Night Shyamalan a, a great contract where you know he could direct it and he had choice of cast and they didn't want Bruce Willis, but he wanted Bruce Willis, so he cast Bruce Willis and the budget was higher than they were comfortable with, so they sold off all the domestic and foreign rights to other companies because they just didn't want anything to do with it and it was the second biggest film of the year. <laughs> so Disney, not always making the smart choices in their history, it has to be said. Uh, someone like Alexander Payne made his second movie. Election came out that year. Doug Liman made Go, which I think was his second or third. Uh, I'm going to say second. Yeah, definitely post Swingers. I don't know if he did anything between the two. But Julie Taymor made Titus. Obviously, she'd been working in theatre for a while, but I think that was her first movie. Uh, Chris Smith made American Movie. Uh, but Ooh. then you then you had, like, scores, in terms of, like, people who are older, you know, obviously we already mentioned someone like Lee, uh, Spike Lee and Soderbergh. Uh, Scorsese made Bringing Out the Dead, which is uh, a fantastic movie that, uh, yeah, a real great reuniting with Paul Schrader on that one. Ang Lee made Ride the, De- Ride the Devil, which is a kind of a, a movie that's been lost to time, but it's, God, it's quite interesting. That's an incredible mm. film, actually. And you know what? 99 was definitely a very good one for uh, Tobey Maguire, mm. looking back Did on you it. Do I- is the Ice Storm the same year, or is that later two year, or earlier? Two years before he did Ice ah. Storm. Uh, Hayao Miyazaki made Princess Mononoke the first time that he retired, um, <laughs> which sounds like would be the like the Ozu movie about his life, the first time I retired. Um, <laughs> Mingela made Talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, Michael Mann made The Insider, which is like a strong contender for his best movie. T- uh, Tim Burton made Sleepy Hollow, which we already mentioned. Abbas Kiristami made the, the Wind Will Carry Us. David Lynch made The Straight Story, another Disney for, movie for yeah. Disney. Yeah, yeah. yeah PG were. thirteen movie by David Lynch for Disney, but still like one of my favorites of his. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I love that movie. Jim Jarmusch made Ghost Dog: Way of the Samurai, also for Disney. No, no, that wasn't for Disney. Cronenberg <laughs> <laughs> um, made Existence. Patrice Leconte made Girl on the Bridge. Mike Lee made Topsy Turvy. The Dardenne Brothers made Rosetta. Uh, oh and then you had like Stanley Kubrick making One Last Sabbath, making movies with Eyes Wide Shut. So you like you have people uh, and you know Woody Allen made Sweet and Lowdown, which is a good movie, but obviously he's a monster. But you know, like you had p- people from all different generations of American film, you know, specifically all kind of coming together and doing work that was like in some cases, like some of the best work they'd ever done, or even if it wasn't the best work they'd done, it was some of the most interesting work they'd ever done. Hmm. And it's interesting to see where those some of those movie brats were as well, mm. the time where George Lucas is finally dusting off his uh, camera to get back behind the, you know, behind the, well, it was the first film he directed since the first Star Wars, right? To do The Phantom yeah. Menace, of, you know, you know, stumping up his own cash to do so, which seems mad now. And then something like Scorsese, who had a weird and difficult 90s for after Goodfellas, 
Um, he went to some really kind of unusual and perhaps not successful places. Uh, it's particularly not commercially successful, coming off the back of something like Kundan a couple of years later. And he does something like Bringing Out the Dead, which kind of revisits a lot of the, the themes and the ideas of you know his more successful work, which is quite interesting. Mm. Yeah, I guess the only like major one of that group that's missing from that time period that was still like active, as mm-hmm. most of people who had died or you know kind of just couldn't couldn't get arrested would be like uh, Coppola who had like just done the Rainmaker, and the next year would I think ghost direct a sci-fi movie the night Supernova would, that's right which yeah. uh, he took over from Walter Hill I think. Uh, Walter Hill got fired from that, and uh, he was inside scoop. Francis Ford Coppola was just still trying to pay off Apocalypse Now, and uh, ended ended the 90s with a run of studio pitches, which were very commercially successful, apart from Supernova, which sucked a giant dick. (laughs) Yes, but but very much like, uh, he was the only one who was really kind of absent that year, but, you know, he he was someone who, like you said, had had kept working because he just needed to to pay off his debts, much like his nephew. A coppler always mm. pays his debts. Like I, I respect that. <laughs> I have to say. Eventually. Uh, well, I hope the interest didn't uh, didn't kill him. <laughs> well, it. What do you guys reckon? Like, it's amazing that there is just such a wide spread across everything. Like, like talking about American cinema, it's really high quality. There's so many films that we've literally just ticked off there, and and quite mm. out there ones. Like, it's not like a safe. It's not like, ah, oh, yes, this was an incredibly safe year. Like, it does feel like a push in some way. Uh, do, mm. Can we... I, I, I'm not sure I know enough about that period because if we're looking at kind of development, kind of timelines, what, everything that we that was released in 99 was, what, being shot maybe in 98 and developed between 96 and 97? Yeah, mm. in a lot of cases, yeah plausibly like yeah. i i just I, I mean i'm just amazed like there's go as well how did i forget about go i mean um the south park movie <laughs> like this is nuts it's just i i i can't really think of another of a year where i think oh god no wait there's actually merit to pretty much everything here the blair witch project fight club mm-hmm. I, i'm I'm, yeah. I'm just like I want to get forensic, but I don't know if we have the time. Or I, I don't know if I mm. actually have the skills to be like, what What was it that brought everything t- together? What like milkshake this? brought all the boys to the yard? Is that what you're asking? That's exactly um, what I am asking now. <laughs> What what is it? What is interesting is like just the fact that you mentioned go there, mm. um, and me and Ed have talked several times before about you know that post Tarantino boom where every film had like a multi stranded narrative that yes. seemed to kind of intertwine with each other, starring kind of a collection of uh, of character actors doing things. It's interesting to see that that still had legs mm. <laughs> uh, in Go, which was what now uh, three years after Pulp Fiction, eight years after Reservoir Dogs. Mm. yeah it is it is quite nuts to see how long that shadow lasted and mm. that you know people were still making good movies out of it because there's a lot of there's a lot of shit <laughs> that comes yep. out of people trying to uh mimic tarantino including one movie that came out that year the like staple of every college males dvd collection from nine from like 2000 to 2007 boondock saints Oh Came Jesus out Christ! In 1999, Oof. I take it back. It was an awful year. <laughs> <laughs> that is the most obnoxious film I have ever seen. It really is, and it takes off like it. It really does give you that. 
it knocks off the balance entirely. I completely agree. Whereas, oh, what's the documentary about him, Troy Duffy? Um, over uh, overnight. Yes, overnight. Like that is that is stunning. Um, but hey, the Boondock Saints is still a benchmark film. It's, qu- mm. it, you know, it's quality in a way. If we didn't have Boondock Saints, maybe, uh, Boondock Saints maybe wouldn't have had the room. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm spitballing. <laughs> we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have quite so many MRAs. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's a big year for MRAs. They get their language from the Matrix, as uh, we yeah. discussed in a previous episode. Uh, they get most of their arguments from Fight Club. <laughs> Which yep. is unfortunate. Like I, I go back and forth on, on Fight Club. I know there's like a lot of discussion about like it's fascist, it's anti-fascist, but the fact that it portrays fascism kind of so sexily, essentially, that it's accidentally fascist and things like that. That's yeah. one of those ones where at, at this point I'm kind of like, even if they didn't intend it, they did accidentally furnish the next generation of fascists <laughs> with a common image and language. So yeah. like it's its merits as kind of like a, a visceral experience are um, certainly clouded at this point. It has to be said. I think in terms of why exactly all of this was happening, I think that it was a time when Hollywood maybe hadn't quite figured out what its next big money-making thing was. Like superhero movies were just around the corner next year x-men was coming out blade had just come out but it wasn't like the biggest success like the the, like in 1999 i looked at the list earlier i think the only significant superhero movie that came out might have been mystery men oh that's a great film it is a great film made no money (laughs) but like it wasn't like anything with superheroes in was like a guaranteed moneymaker in, in 1999. And sure, like sequels made money. Toy Story 2 was one of the biggest films of the year. Obviously, the, the prequel, the first prequel for Star Wars was uh, the biggest film of the year and made huge amounts of money. But I, I really feel as if their, you know, the blockbuster model of the 80s was becoming a little bit rickety and you weren't kind of getting... Uh, studios were putting more and more money into bigger and bigger movies but they weren't really delivering as much anymore people were maybe tiring apart from like once every couple of and once a year you'd get like something huge would come along but i think post titanic there was this real sense of like well what's the next big movie what's the next big blockbuster we have and like the previous Mm. year the big blockbuster was saving private ryan it's Mm. like like it was a it was a kind of a period in flux and i think there were lots of studios that were kind of had a lot of cash to throw around were maybe willing to take a, a punt on a lot of all of uh, on pretty much anything particularly like in the wake of something like uh titanic which no one saw as being the money maker that it was maybe people thinking like we need to take risks we need to try and maybe throw money behind something that might not necessarily seem like the biggest uh potential money maker and, and like you say like there was a fairly healthy market of mini majors like the big studios were pursuing big uh, were pursuing like big budget movies with big stars but there were this there was this whole substrata of studios that were investing in movies that cost like 20 30 million dollars 40 million dollars sometimes and could turn like a tidy little profit mm. and uh, you would make those on the off chance that you would get something like like a sixth sense that you know didn't cost very much and made like more than 10 times its budget or something like a runaway bride which is like not the most expensive movie in the world but you put two big stars in it and you know audiences lap it up and the davis family go to see it on a day trip to london in the odeon leicester square <laughs> <laughs> what a smashing it's the only trip. place to watch something like that you know mm, yeah i've seen three three movies in my life at the odeon leicester square 
They are Runaway Bride, Miss Congeniality, and Mother, which is an, a, 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 a tr- if anyone can find the thematic link between those those movies, I'd, I'd love to read that essay. I think someone could make an absolutely superb Mother in the style of a 90s, <laughs> early 2000s female-led rom-com. Like, 100%. Mm. I would... I. Just send me your Kickstarter details. I'll fund it. The other thing that's um, that's striking me is that there's a lack of saturation of franchises, right? Mm. Like we we start a few, like we start American Pie. There is, of course, the regrettable uh, prequels of uh, Phantom Menace in in Star mm. Wars. We start the Matrix. We've got Toy Story two, but really, it's kind of amazing because this is before you know what the first spider-man film again tom mcguire came out in what 2001 2002 yeah which to me really kicked off that kind of superhero revival so you've not got this kind of approach of like where's our franchise Mm, i think um that that one two of x-men and spider-man uh is what kicked it off yeah but i wonder whether or not the kind of the studios felt a little bit uh, burned by something like Wild Wild West that came out ninety nine. <laughs> mm. You mean Wiki 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 Wild Wild West to give it its full title? It's actually Wiki Wild Wiki, Wiki Wild Wiki Wild Wild West. Yes, um, yeah. Sorry, come on. It's, Let's it's be a, curious here. Emily, it's fine. It's a very common misconception. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and if you like looking back at that now, that looks like one of the weirdest <laughs> blockbusters ever to have been like chucked into a mainstream kind of release cycle the fact that it's kind of based on some weird obscure show that that no one outside of you know like was it was it a 60s or a 70s show wild wild Uh, west yeah 60s yeah yeah i mean that's such a weird niche audience to to aim a blockbuster at for any kind of brand recognition um and then it just turns out to be one of the most cumbersome odd things and not in a good way in the year that the matrix kind of drops as well and then maybe the that kind of release of let's try and do something big with a you know a high concept behind it um and then just sequelize it until we run out of ideas rather than let's take an established character like spider-man or mm-hmm. the x-men and we've got 40 years of stories about them already written mm. but also that year like there's an interesting counterweight to wild or west and that was also the year that we got the stephen summers version of the mummy uh, yeah. came out which was another no. one where you think so it's a, a remake of horror movie from the 1930s that isn't even really you know compared to the other canonical universal monsters it's really that well remembered and you're putting in brendan fraser who at that point was like re i think that was like he was reasonably well known but he wasn't like the star that he would become post mummy um rachel vice who wasn't really particularly well known at that point from anything like there's no one in that movie you would point to arnold vuzlu you know like <laughs> that was very much the peak peak vuzlu like there wasn't much there wasn't much there that would say this is going to be like a, a runaway roaring success and it was like the eighth most successful film of the year and it that was another one that launched like a franchise that ran a few movies too long particularly when you add in like the scorpion king and the 12 sequels they made to that but yeah like that there, there was like you can definitely see a world in which uh, Wild Wild West takes off in a bigger way because, you know, they just make a slightly better version of it. <laughs> Something that's like a little more fun in the and less like horribly racist. Mm. Yeah. 
I can't get over thinking that Peak Voozloo Vuz- is now the name of our Folktronica side project. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is the elephant in the room we haven't mentioned, and I'm going to bring it up now, and everyone who's listening to this is screaming, why haven't you mentioned this an hour or so into the show? But the idea that the films Lake Placid and Deep Blue Sea were released, released in the same fortnight is just <laughs> mind-boggling. Oh, my God. That is, that is a left-right knockout punch right there. Mm, yeah, that again, the the wave of killer animal movies <laughs> from the 90s really kind of reaching its peak there. Yeah. Lake Placid, the closest we've ever got to a kind of a spiritual sequel to Tremors is mm. great, but Deep Blue Sea is even better. <laughs> and and also, like, you, uh, did you guys, you guys without me did the, the episode on like DVD extras, didn't you? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Did you ever, like, ever listen to the commentary? On, no, I know the answer to this already. The commentary <laughs> on Deep Blue Sea is Rennie Harlan and uh, Samuel L. Jackson, and like halfway through, Samuel L. Jackson goes, "Oh, I'll be right back." And just never comes back. <laughs> 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 he just just nips out and just never comes back. I don't know whether that's a, a kind of sly commentary, pun intended, on his exit from the film. But yeah, oh, that was pretty funny. That is pretty great. What do we think of? Do we think there are any kind of like recurring themes and ideas in some of these movies? Because I think. Something that a lot of people talk about is like the pre-millennial angst everyone's heading towards, you know, Y2K, everyone's afraid that all of our computers are going to kill us or whatever people assume is going to happen. Basically that. Planes were going to fall out of the sky, all the nukes were going to go off. You know, those are the sort of things. There was a, there was a kind of an, a sense of unease about, you know, where the next century was going to was gonna take us, which was turned out to be right. <laughs> everyone was right to be worried, just not for the reasons that they all thought at the time. But I, I really do feel as if like... When you look at some of the movies that came out that year, there's there's uh, the theme of uh, people discovering reality is not as they thought in some way. The Matrix is obviously the big one, but you know, Fight Club has some of that. In the the character at the end suddenly realizes that um, the person he's been following around is actually him. Sixth Sense obviously is built on a reality shattering twist. Eyes Wide Shut kind of has that in the sense that the main character wanders through this kind of like dream like dream like world and thinks that there's sinister forces and it's just all it's just rich people fucking and that's mm. like so i think that's a theme that you see kind of like cropping up and and one thing that you see a lot particularly in something like american beauty which was the film that ended up winning best picture that year was this kind of real sense of dissatisfaction with kind of america post world uh, post cold war the kind of like francis fukuyama idea of the end of history like there's no there's no big battles to fight anymore or whatever like people kind of have this sense of malaise and aimlessness when i say people i particularly mean like rich white men which is what a lot mm. of these movies are about there's this sense of dissatisfaction with your, your day job or whatever so you want to disappear into your computer world or fight people in car parks uh, and yeah, so that that's kind of something that I see in a lot of these sort of movies. Like that's a theme that's kind of cropping up as as mm. people are, and it's also articulated um, by Tony Soprano in The Sopranos, where he talks about you know having feeling like he came at the in at the end of something. Like that is something that I think permeates a lot of those movies. I think Ed, you also um, I think the film that exemplifies that the most for me is Big Daddy. Mm, yeah sorry that's the shit post equivalent of podcasting i'm really sorry i was sitting there and you made this really excellent point and then i i was just being <laughs> i was just being the brat because i'm the youngest here but but seriously that a, was a huge movie big daddy <laughs> that's that's insane it made 163 <laughs> million dollars 160 trillion dollars <laughs> yeah. holy shit one trillion 
dollars. Actually, well, you know, Big Daddy, Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me. There's a lot of uh, masculine, the crisis of masculinity stuff that is kind of sneaking in, like actually to try and like pull around my uh, shit posty joke to, to an actual point. Like, you know, Big Daddy's all about this lumping of responsibility. You've got Arnold Schwarzenegger, end of days. That's probably the most kind of like escalatory. I can never say the smart word, goddammit, eschatological kind of disaster element to it. I think, is it a kind of last hurrah? I don't know. I think, I think um, Eyes Wide Shut is is a film that, obviously, because that's Kubrick, that ended up being Kubrick's last film, even though we didn't mm. really know it at the time, obviously. Yeah. He died like three days after finishing the edit or something crazy like that. Oh, it was like, God, of course. It was, re- it was really shocking. <laughs> It was, wasn't it? And I think maybe there's, I don't know, I th- I think there's definitely a lot of kind of a rise in kind of questioning the American way of life that I don't think had really been done since the 70s. Like if you look mm. at stuff like like Fight Club, like American Beauty, like being John Malkovich, like Three Kings, The Matrix again, like this this idea of the sixth sense to an extent, like what you see isn't, what you'll give, you're, what you see is what you're given actually like look look beyond it i think there's a general kind of sense of questioning that inspector gadget as well oh, shit, sure. yeah that's all that's full crisis of masculinity full blame <laughs> uh, uh, yeah i think bowfinger actually as well <laughs> i think i think there's oh, a lot of bowfinger kind of, so much fun right yeah. isn't it like i still think of um terence stamp saying you know well sometimes the paranoid really are being followed that's one of the best line deliveries ever <laughs> in a film <laughs> yeah i do i do think there's a kind of i don't feel the kind of dread that maybe soprano does in in these films i do think there's kind of a a kind of catching up of like oh whoa okay we do get to look beneath a bit more mm. I, I think in terms of that pre-millennial tension, Office Space and The Matrix are essentially yes. the same film, but they have their sliding doors moment <laughs> and one person, you know, uh, takes the pill and, and, you know, frees a whole underclass of people from being human batteries from alien overlords um, mm. and the other guy just smashes his printer up. Yeah, you're totally right, Matt. Mm. I think also in terms of, like, comedies that weirdly fit this, I think Analyze This has some sort of, like questioning of and again like weird that that came out pretty much at the exact same time as the soprano started like that has that same sense of like a a, a man who's kind of like looking back on what he's done over his life and thinking you know what does any of this mean add up you know what does this all add up to my life of crime uh and and uh billy crystal will trying to trying to not get murdered but yeah like i think that is there there are lots of movies in that that do seem to be questioning basically like the i guess the position of the american male at that point in human history uh, again at that sense of like you've had the 90s which were fairly prosperous for the most part you know the, you had the yeah. recession at the beginning of it but generally they were fairly prosperous there weren't that many kind of ongoing conflicts i guess like you had kosovo and and you had these kind of like pol- uh, quote unquote police actions that were being carried out but it was in recent years, kind of a period of relative stability, I think, for a lot of people in America. Yeah. Um, and you hadn't really seen, like, the worst side effects of something like the like NAFTA taking a, pla- a place. Like, there was still a lot of manufacturing jobs. A lot of those hadn't been lost yet. So, like, I, I really do feel like at a time of relative prosperity like that, I think a lot of people who were working in the entertainment industry or were wanting to break into the entertainment industry looking at the world around them and kind of 
trying to make sense of it all like where is the conflict now and trying to look inwards Mm. something kind of interesting that i've noticed is we talked i well i mean i said earlier about how odd it was to still still see the kind of ripples in the pond from tarantino's uh early work yeah um that you're seeing some really low budget films released in 99 that started their own ripples in the pond and were endlessly ripped off they were the blair witch project the aforementioned Mm -hmm. blair witch project um which started a, a found footage boom that kind of ended just a few years ago um Mm. when we kind of moved into that kind of the conjuring the annabelle you know that kind of modern kind of horror type don't even know how to describe that um but there's just like creepy ladies um (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, the other one being lock stock and two smoking barrels um Mm. which obviously again was ripped off from tarantino but then started its whole i mean a whole village industry uh cottage industry village industry i don't even know what that is a cottage industry uh in the uk of just fucking terrible gangster oh, movies God, yeah. and that is slowly dying out but there's still kind of like you know vinnie jones is still getting work somehow is he yeah, yeah. <laughs> straight to dvd I, stuff i guess at this point yeah the depths of amazon prime uh you can find it and they've all got i saw one pop up the other day it was like something called like uh we still kill people the old way <laughs> and it was just like people that i assume are like ray winston and bricktop and like vinnie jones and just like what's the old way why why are you killing people at all just be nice very quick uh vinnie jones uh moment i heartily recommend the baffling uh offering of the midnight meat train starring none other Mm. than uh the born star himself bradley cooper with where uh vinnie jones plays a serial killer called mahogany and uh, yeah, I mean, the fact that no one did a cursory Google in 2008 to be like, maybe the Midnight Meat Train could be confused for a different type of film rather than a horror <laughs> genuinely set on uh, on trains. Um, but yeah, sorry, that's my Vinnie Jones tip. Hmm, was uh, So Vinnie Jones played someone called Mahogany. Was his uh, performance <clears throat> a little wooden? <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to dignify that with a response. <laughs> <laughs> that's, like those, that's like one of Vic Reeves' jokes in uh, Shooting Stars now. The tumbleweed's going across, a lamb walks into the studio and dies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm here to help, guys. But yeah. Um, I'm, I'm trying to kind of look and see if there's anything else interesting that just kind of pops out. Um, that I'm, I'm stunned at how many of these films I actually saw in the cinema. Oh, I, I guess in terms of prophetic films, uh, Ed TV. Yeah, the Ron Howard mm. kind of reality TV show that was just kind of pre the big reality TV boom, pre McConaughey round one. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm mainly kind of looking at like some of the more like outliers, like just movies that came out that year that were just really weird and like didn't really make anything in the way of ripples, but like they were just really good. And like the big one for that is Ravenous, which mm. is obviously like a terrific, strange horror cannibalism comedy with wonderful music by Michael Nyman and Damon Alban, but not working together. Oh, mm-hmm. recording Recording entirely separate soundtracks for it, which were meshed together. And that is a, that's a really kind of like a wonderful movie. Or something like uh, David Coep's Stir of Echoes, which is like a really good ghost story. Yeah, there's just like, it's, it's the thing I like about 1999 when you look at it is like, there's just like a long... There's like the the canonical like ten fifteen movies that everyone remembers and that all became like master, considered masterpieces and were really influential. But then like when you look into the second tier, it's like all this stuff's really kind of like weird and interesting. Dick, the uh, movie yeah. where Kirsten Dunst and 
Michelle Williams take down Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a really that's a really good, good movie. Uh, Mr. Death, the Kirby Dick documentary about the Holocaust denier, is a really great documentary and deeply upsetting, but a really good documentary nonetheless. Uh, yeah, there's just lots of really interesting stuff. Mm. Two things that I'm going to throw in the mix, like you know, late on. One, it was the end of the Disney Renaissance because Tarzan came out mm. in uh, 1999. I think that was pretty much it. It was Dinosaur next, I think. Yeah, you got and Dinosaur, Treasure Planet. That's uh, the start of the slide. Lost, lost a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, Atlantis, The Last Empire. They, they just had like a run of movies in a row that were wildly mm. expensive and made nothing. But despite Phil Collins' best efforts, Tarzan is still pretty decent. Um, mm. But yeah, so that's one. And then also, you know, we talked a little about why the you know Emily said you know it was kind of it feels like no one was starting to kick off a franchise and with mm. with uh, Spider-Man and X-Men just around the corner I'm just trying to think because I was trying to remember if Godzilla came out this year uh, and it didn't I think it was the year beforehand mm. so in yeah. in, a, in the space of a year studios had uh, Godzilla uh, Avengers and Wild Wild West uh, the three three big films and there's probably more I'm just putting these uh, titles out of nowhere three relatively recognizable films properties and trying to make big films out of them that just did nothing were critically derided made no money or not the money that would certainly um speculate sequels so that then makes something like x-men something like spider-man suddenly feel a bit more like a safer bet Mm. i saw avengers in the cinema (laughs) but still i still can't quite tell you what the hell happens in that movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I mean, this this might be a detail you've forgotten, but uh, do you remember the henchman double act played by Eddie Izzard and Sean Ryder? Oh, um, no. Oh, I didn't remember Sean Ryder being in it. There you go. That happened. Wow. Yeah, everyone was taking big swings in 1998. Mm, that's the, the first ever uh, edition of Empire that I bought was the 1998 blockbuster preview episode with Uma Thurman on the front in a Emma Peel get up. And it came, and listeners, this is true, it came with a free VHS tape of trailers attached to the front. <gasps> I miss when magazines used to do that. I had a, <laughs> I had one from a Nintendo like fan magazine, which was just a, a purple VHS because it was ahead of the release of the GameCube. And it was just footage of that they'd shown at e3 of all of the gamecube titles that were coming out in the current year many of which never saw release because they were by (laughs) they were by rare who were then bought by microsoft so like it was a real curious artifact that within a year it's like none of these games are ever going to see the light of day we're not going to see whatever this new donkey kong game is that they were planning to make Mm, yeah oh videos on the front of magazines eh yeah it's it's more fun, more fun than DVDs, but also probably a harder strain on Postman. Mm. <laughs> I can only assume. Yeah. I've just noticed that uh, Analyze This and Mickey Blue Eyes came out in the same year. Yeah, I saw Mickey oh. Blue Eyes in the cinema. Oh, Jesus Christ! I don't know. I don't know why. I'm uh, starting to feel like I can retroactively uh, report your parents to child services. Although <laughs> mm. I also saw that year the Pokemon, the first movie, which is something I always feel like I need to apologise to my dad for. Because he took us to watch it and he did not enjoy it. <laughs> he had no particular emotional or intellectual connection with Pokemon, with the rise of Mewtwo, <laughs> and whether or not Ash dying at the end was sad. He came back mm. to life. But like mm. it was like that was very much like one of those movies where I look back and I think, you know, that's that's the real true sacrifice of parenthood. 
Yeah. <laughs> being forced to go and watch a Pokemon movie with your dumb kids. God damn you kids. I found, uh, just digging around in the depths of, you know, looking for outliers, two very unusual films made completely out of the director's wheelhouses. Um, you had uh, Wes Craven making a kind of frothy melodrama about a music teacher called Music of the Heart. Mm. And then you had Sam Raimi uh, making a baseball comedy. Yes. Yeah. For, for the love of the game. Yeah. Uh, is Costner in that one? It feels like he I mean, be. he's in most baseball movies. Yeah. It's a, it's on the federal statue. I think it's the 27th Amendment. Mm, yeah. He just wanders around studios in the gear and just hopes it'll get a game. <laughs> yeah. That was very much a out of character choice for both of those. It, not quite to the extent that the straight story was for David Lynch, but mm. like, there's a lot of like, one of those things where you think, I guess that you can make a baseball movie if you like. But he, he, he had like a very interesting 90s did Raimi because that was him. He tried a bunch of stuff after mm. the third Evil Dead movie. Like he did Dark Man, his first superhero movie. He did Quick and the Dead, uh, The Gift, I think he did the year after, and uh, A Simple Plan, which is probably his best movie. Yeah, but and then Spider-Man. Which I like a lot. I like those first two Spider-Man movies The first movies two Spider-Man's lot, are yeah. great. Um, can, I, can I jump in with, with um, appreciated uh, 99 films? Uh, Election. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. incredible. I, I genuinely don't think Alexander Payne's really ever topped that. It's something like... I saw Downsizing last week, and it is so embarrassingly poor. Oh. <laughs> it, is, it is a low for literally every single person involved, probably even the extras. Oh, God, that's awful. Oh, well, oh, that's it. Carry on. <laughs> that's fine. You know, we, we need to make space for how, oh, you know, 20 years on. Oh, dear. But, you know, if I made a film like Election, I would I would stop. <laughs> that's, my, that's my advice. Um, and also East is East. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 That was that was very, very big growing up in kind of like Leicestershire in, you know, like Leicester obviously has a big Indian and Pakistani population i remember it's at my school uh east is east being just like massive that and goodness gracious me were like two things which i feel like yes. really penetrated the culture in england in general in terms of like visibility of of kind of indian and pakistani people in britain but like really so at my school like those like were they were seismic yeah mm. absolutely yeah um, if we're just freestyling now and just checking in films that we liked from 1999, we haven't mentioned mm-hmm. The Iron Giant, have we? No. Yeah, I was just about to bring that one up. That was yeah. uh, great in terms of like, it, I, it's weird to think that like Brad Bird was like a new face back then because he'd been doing The Simpsons for so long and he'd been on on the edges of Hollywood for like years and years and years. But yeah, it's weird to think that that was his first movie and he knocked it just out of the fucking park on the first mm. go. Yeah. Um, also, uh, I mean, it's not good. In fact, it's very bad. Um, the The world is not enough. The last mm. uh, that's not the last of the Brosnan Bonds, was it? But I mean, it was no. pretty poor. It was it was pretty bad. Made um, great use of the Millennium Dome, if I remember correctly. Yep. Yep. Uh, in the opening sequence, <laughs> that was its kind of its big claim to fame. Well, it's kind of the Millennium um, Dome's big claim to fame as well. Let's be honest. It was definitely a reciprocal mm. uh, relationship there. Yeah. Um, and also, Rob, I remember Robert Carlyle at one point just holding a scolding um, coal for a scene because he oh was a God, guy who yeah. couldn't feel pain. <laughs> that was his big thing. <laughs> and then at the end, he gets speared by, I want to say he gets speared by a nuclear warhead or something at the end. Or something, something fires out and pins him against a wall. Oh my God, yeah. yeah that was nuts. 
There's also, oh man, what's the awful, awful, even for Bond standard joke about Christmas in Turkey? Yeah. Uh, oh, what is it? I, I always wanted to spend, uh, I always wanted to have Christmas in Turkey. Is it something like that? Because oh, it's Do- Dr. Like Christmas that. Jones is, uh, yeah. is Denise Richards' character's name. I always mm. misremembered it as thinking, maybe it's a joke elsewhere in the movie, but is there a joke in it which is like, I, I always thought Christmas only came once a year or something like that. That's what oh. I remember the joke in the movie yeah. being. Oh. <laughs> but maybe I've just invented some, for some reason. Yeah, I but what, what's he suggesting? That he's made someone come twice in a year? <laughs> That's not a lot of times. <laughs> I mean, I, you true. know, I'm not like, you know, Mickey Rock or anything, but Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey Rock? That's the most stud-like person I could think of at this time. Jesus. <laughs> wow. Mm. So we end this episode as we end all <laughs> Thinking about Mickey Rook making women. Yeah, on the job. Gosh. What a horrible, horrible thought. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We'll, we'll mm. leave you all with something nice to think of now. We've recommendations in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what do you want to recommend for the listeners this week? Mm, to knock that rock-like uh, image out <laughs> of your mind, his uh, kind of twisted plastic face leering over you, um, I'm going to recommend a very wholesome, enjoyable indie movie called Hearts Beat Loud. You can find it on Netflix. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a pretty indie movie. It has strong indie credentials. Uh, it's uh, uh, set and shot in Brooklyn in the hip neighborhood of Red Hook um, and centers around uh, Nick Offerman's kind of widower, uh, ex-musician who owns a record shop which is shutting down and he uh, kind of forms a bond with his daughter played by Kiersey Clemens uh, who is you know preposterously talented both in the film and you know IRL and uh, yeah she, they write music together and play music together and when they record a uh, single which catches fire on Spotify they suddenly find themselves um, you know a little bit internet famous and it's about how the dad wants to kind of maybe have one last chance at being a rock star and the daughter just wants to go to uh, medical school and get a real job, uh, but also wants to just make her dad happy. Uh, and it's a it's a lovely little film. I'd highly recommend the the, the performances are all really likable. It's got uh, uh, Ted Danson and Blythe Danner and Tony Collette in kind of uh, um, supporting parts. Jeff Tweedy turns up, um, which, you know, is never bad reuniting with his Parks and Recreation co-star Offerman, um, but yeah, it's on Netflix. Uh, check it out, um, and yeah, it's a it's a pretty nice way to spend ninety minutes. Cool, yeah, I'll second that. It's a lovely movie. Emily, what have you got to recommend for us? I have Shrill to recommend, which is the Hulu series based on Lindy West's book of essays, starring A.D. Bryant and Lolly Adafope, and it's just wonderful. Like. I wasn't really sure what it was doing at first in the opening episode, but the more you spend time with it, the more that you realise the kind of core irony is that you are watching a really quite gentle, real, plausible cast of, of friends and colleagues. Even the wacky people are plausibly wacky. Like There's nothing tipping over into something like bombastically fantastical and there is a woman who is finding her voice and is actually quietly confident so she's not shrill in the slightest which is just a lovely way of making Lindy West's writing giving it its own built world in terms of a show and I think there's a kind of 
quite knowing. But it does it doesn't feel like a direct counter argument to girls, but it's amazing to see some really like positive, healthy female friendships and believable life events and, and drama without anything too high octane and just presented really beautifully. Um so yeah, Shrill is my kind of gentle without being like sickeningly aspirational <laughs> it feels it feels grounded and i really like it for that so please give it a watch cool i'm going to recommend a movie from 1997 that was just released on blu-ray here in the states it's satoshi Kon's debut movie perfect blue it's satoshi <sighs> Kon's a anime director who directed a lot of really great movies including paprika was his last movie before he passed away in 2010 uh, tokyo godfather's millennium actress but perfect blue i think it is probably his most famous it's about a pop star who decides that she's going to try and become a kind of legitimate actor who then finds herself being stalked by an obsessive fan who seems to be deeply troubled by the fact that she is kind of doing these more adult roles and kind of obsesses over the, the idea that she is an imposter taking away this kind of like pure version of herself that had been created in the media and it's just a really one it's really really violent and disturbing so fair warning it's a real dark movie but it's a really i think very smart movie about the nature of fandom and how it can curdle when people feel like they own the work of you know kind of an artist and don't want to see that artist change in any way it's kind of really horribly prophetic in that regard and particularly in the, the way in which the internet can be used to manipulate people into believing those sort of things it's beautifully animated it looks great it looks really really great on blu-ray and it's just a really kind of amazing and kind of like dynamic thriller that i think uh, a lot of people really liked at the time when it came out and and it's it's cult has only grown so i think that people should absolutely check out perfect blue agreed an incredible film if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm all the usual places uh acast spotify you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me goodbye from me and goodbye from me ghouls <laughs> <laughs>